please turn with me in your Bibles now to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. This morning we're going to be taking a brief break from our normal series on 1 John. And don't worry, we will be returning to 1 John. I absolutely love the opportunity to be able to preach through books of the Bible. It was one of the things I was most excited about coming here was the opportunity to preach through whole uh, books of the Bible. But I feel, as your minister, it's important at times that uh, to, to break from such series, to, to look at various topics and biblical texts that will hopefully bless the people of God here in Rathryland to help build up the body of Christ here. And this morning we're going to be starting a new series. It won't be a series that will be every week. It will be a sermon here and a sermon there, really, that might be once a month. But the the series is called Essentials of a Healthy Church. Essentials of a Healthy Church. And we're going to be looking at different parts of the Bible, lots of different topics over a, a long period of time. And as we look at this series of Essentials of a Healthy Church, Many churches in the West really lack many of these elements, or maybe some of them. Some may have more than others. What is going to be discussed in this series is not what is a church and what is not a church. That is a different topic. But this is really what is saying what is needed to be a healthy, vibrant, growing church. Or put it another way, a church where a zealous, godly person, hungry to learn of Christ, would be happy and overjoyed to join and labor along with its members. Now, churches may lack a number of these elements, and to be honest, every church in the world has areas in which we need to grow. And they can lack elements that we're going to look at in this series and survive and still be true churches of Jesus Christ and still have a lot to offer the body of Christ. But dear friends, as we look at this series, let us not think about surviving as a church. Let us think of thriving as a church. Let us think of growing and not just being content to stay where we are spiritually. Let us think about what does it take to please God? Yes, through Christ, but he's given us commandments. He's given us the Bible to learn of him. And this morning, what we're going to look at is a a topic that I think many don't realize how important it is to the health of the church. And it is the title we're going to go with this morning, the purity of worship. Purity of worship. And worship is really something we offer up before God. And it is to be a sweet smelling savor before him, something pleasing before him in his sight. Imagine if you are going to a birthday party and you were bringing a present with you and you said, I don't mind what they like. I want to give them this. I'm not sure if they like it, but I want to give them this. Or you know that they like this specific uh, present. They like some specific thing. You'd probably bring them that gift, wouldn't you? It's an offering before God, dear friends. We have to think in worship, it's not about what we like to give God. It is what does God wish to receive from us. And we must seek to please him in all our ways. And worship, worshiping in a way, we're going to see this morning, which God commands in his holy 
and his infallible word. And dear friends, in, in that, that God would bless us. It's a wonderful thing to come in the way that God has ordained in his word, that we may thrive as a church. Now, as we read through Leviticus chapter 10, it may seem like a strange text to look at this morning, but I pray by God's grace we will see why this is much to teach us about the worship of God. So Leviticus chapter 10, let us hear now from God's holy and his infallible word. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censure and put fire in it, put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Then Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, lest you die in wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It should be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean, that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. And Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons who were left. Take the grain offering that remains of the offering made by fire to the Lord and eat it without the leaven beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due of the sacrifices made by fire to the Lord. For so I have been commanded. The breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering you shall eat in a clean place, you, your sons, and your daughters with you. For they are your Jew and your son's Jew, which are given from the sacrifices of peace offerings of the children of Israel. The thigh of the heave offering and the breast of the wave offering they shall bring with the offerings of fat made by fire to offer as a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you by a statute forever. As the Lord has commanded. Then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering. And there it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar. The sons of Aaron who were left saying. Why have we, you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place? Since it is most holy. 
And God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation. To make atonement for them before the Lord. See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Instead, you should have eaten it in a holy place as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, look, this day they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. And such things have befallen me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? So then Moses heard that he was content. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and his infallible word. If I could speak to the boys and girls for a moment. Um, Imagine you were coming to a baptism here this morning. And imagine you're coming to a baptism and you're expecting what to be used in the baptism. Maybe it's a baby, maybe it's an adult. But you'd expect, wouldn't you, water to be poured over the head of the person being baptized. But what if you went to a church and they said, we don't want to use water. We want to use something different. We'd like to use cleaner. Maybe it's got a bit better picture. I know when I'm washing something out of my clothes, water alone just won't do. I think this is a better picture. I don't want to use water. We want to use a cleaner. Now, you might think that's strange. Why, why would that happen? Now, we've probably never seen that in real life. What if somebody said, this is better than water? We need soap instead. Now, we might be able to think of a reason to do something other than water, or maybe even the Lord's Supper to do something different from bread and the cup. But it would probably offend all of us, wouldn't it? If somebody changed things about baptism or the Lord's Supper, and you came in, if in the Lord's Supper they had crisps and Coca-Cola, you'd probably go, that's strange, isn't it? And you'd probably think, that's just wrong. It's not right. You'd probably be even annoyed. You'd probably go, I'm not going back to that church again. That's a bit strange. And you might even think of leaving at that point. But why? Let's ask ourselves, why is that? I think all Christians, no matter what our convictions, no matter what even denominations we're part of, will get a feeling of annoyance inside them when they think of baptism in the Lord's Supper, because we're all very protective of baptism in the Lord's Supper. Why is that? Because baptism is commanded that it is water, And it is also, I think we forget, part of worship. It's part of worship. So we're all very protective of it. And you could say every single Christian in the world, regardless of what you believe about baptism and the Lord's Supper, are very strict about this, aren't you? Everybody is. Everybody's got a line in the sand and say, I will not cross that line. And if we go beyond that, you say, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. So that's... The sacraments. And we should have a a strictness about the sacraments. And it's right that we do. And we should follow God's word. And we shouldn't add in worship. But what about other parts of worship? Praise. In the Psalms. Preaching. Who is allowed to preach in the church? Uh, Prayer. Who is to lead in prayer in the service of worship? How about the reading of the scriptures? Because that's an authoritative act in reading the scriptures. 
all of these parts are part of the worship service because they're found in the scriptures. That's the only reason they're there. Even the offering, that's part of our worship before God. And dear friends, if you can show me any of those elements should be part of worship, I'd be happy to advocate for the removal of them. It has to be found in the word of God. It has to be commanded by God. So, as we look now to Leviticus chapter 10, what can we learn about this? It might seem like a strange text to look at this morning. But what can we learn from Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, that what they, what they offered was something not commanded by God, What can it teach us in the year 2023? Our first point that we're going to look at here this morning, looking at the topic of the purity of worship, the purity of worship, we're going to look at the principle of worship, the principle of worship. Now, you may have books in your house, maybe from years ago when you were in school, principles or fundamental things that you learned in mathematics Well, here's a basic truth of worship before God. And it's not something that started in Leviticus chapter 10. It it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. It is the principle of worship that, that is this. Anything that is not commanded in worship is forbidden. That's the principle found all the way throughout Scripture, starting from the very beginning all the way throughout. So if it is not commanded in worship, it's is forbidden. And notice how I say worship. I don't say life. I say worship. Just the service of worship. In Leviticus chapter 10, we see an example of two people. This is Nadab and Abihu, who offered something not commanded by God. Verse 1 of Leviticus chapter 10. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censure and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. Which he had not commanded them. Now that word, that phrase, profane fire, it's translated lots of different ways in in different translations. It could be strange fire, as it is in the King James. Uh, Unauthorized fire, I've seen it translated that way as well. Foreign fire. The idea is, it's something different to what God commanded in his word. Now, we may look at that text and kind of go, well, incense was used, actually, in in Exodus. And a lot of people, a lot of commentators, when they come to this, they kind of go, they're not exactly sure what Nadab and Abihu did wrong. But they can all agree in one thing. As in the end of the verse, which he had not commanded them. They're not exactly sure, was it the wrong type of incense? Was it a different type of coal? Whatever it was, it wasn't commanded by God, and it was somehow different. That offering was different. Now, when we come to such a text, and we see what, how God responded to the fire off, offered, God responded with fire, we struggle today, don't we? We struggle with any uh, sense of limitations on our, our rights and our freedoms, But we must remember we're coming before God. And in coming before God, the most important rights are not ours. They're Christ's crown rights. And how we worship. We must remember his crown rights in coming into the presence of Almighty God. We enter into his courts by his permission. And he 
Now, we have to think about this for a second because it's his courts and it's, it's his, we're coming into his presence. Who gets to decide what is worship? God or man? That's the fundamental issue. And you'll see lots of churches disagreeing with each other. It's very sad. There's a lot of division. There's been a lot of division for hundreds of years over the issue of worship. There really is. And this isn't a new issue at all. But it comes down to this fundamental issue. Every single element of worship, is it decided by God or is it decided by man? Departures from what God has commanded, they may start off with very, very good intentions. And they usually are good intentions. They may be designed to help people, maybe designed to bless people, maybe designed in such a way to help people understand the word of God better. But whatever the reason is, and there usually are good intentions, they do bring the displeasure of Almighty God. There's a stark warning here in verse 2. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. It's very abrupt, very abrupt. Nadab and Abihu offered fire before God, not commanded by God. It didn't bring blessing. I think we think, well, it doesn't matter what we offer as long as our heart is right. It does. We're coming into the presence of Almighty God. It is a wonderful privilege. And we must think, again, thinking of that picture we had earlier. If you're coming to somebody's birthday party and you know that they like a certain present, you know they like a certain book, or you know they like a certain movie, you're probably going to get that as a present for them, aren't you? You're not just going to get your favorite movie and they're not going to enjoy it. You're going to get their favorite movie, their favorite book. Maybe if they're a big football fan, you'll get them a football. But you get them, you offer them what they want. And coming to God, we must offer him what he wants. We are blessed to be here. Worship, dear friends, has to be all about God because if it is not about God, it has started to become idolatry. The second commandment as well can have a lot to do with this as well. If we look at our confession or catechisms, the second commandment is all about how we approach God. And idolatry is not just worshipping a false god. It can also be worshipping the true God, but in a false way. The principle is for our worship. If God has commanded it, we do it. If he's not commanded it, we cannot do it. That is the principle. No innovations are allowed. In Colossians 2.23, it says this, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. Or it's also been translated years ago, will worship. Our own will, designing what is worshipful. That's what happened to the Colossian church. They started inventing things. Our own testimony of our church, which is part of our standards as a church, and which all elders and deacons will swear to, to defend. It says this in our testimony. The Bible makes clear that God has particular care for the purity of his own worship. Its constituent elements are not left to man's choice or opinion. Not left to man's choice or opinion. The testimony of the church, one I have sworn to and I hope by God's grace to, to live up to. I will fall short and I know that. But it is something that I'm duty bound to keep. 
It says also in that same testimony, whatever is not commanded in the worship of God is forbidden. This scriptural principle must be upheld by our session as we have sworn solemn oaths before God to do so. So that's the principle of worship. So that's the idea. We're going to look at this over a number of points now. Now we're also going to look at the, the promise of worship. I don't want us to look at negatives this morning and just say, hey, here's what you can't do. And There's something wonderful in this text as well. I know we might not see it with the deaths of Nadab and Abihu. But there's also a promise of worship. Number two, the promise of worship. So we looked at the principle of worship. We're now going to look at the promise of worship. What is truly wonderful is, when we come to the service of worship, God is truly here. He's here. And I'm not talking about the building. You could go out in the street and do a service of worship, and he's there in the midst of you. And what's wonderful about that is for the Christian following God's will with a heart before him, it's a blessing. It's actually, we see this in the previous chapter, Leviticus chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Leviticus chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering at this point. And the fat on the altar, when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. They were in awe. And that's the wonderful thing about worship. We meet with the triune God in a special way. Now, because of what happened to Nadab and Abihu in verse 2, it's a very sobering, very sobering um, message. It's right after this joy, Nadab and Abihu, we're not sure what's going through their minds. Maybe they're too jovial. Maybe they're just everything's going wonderful. And they start trying different things. But there's a sobering up that is brought into them. Perhaps, and we're not sure here, but perhaps they were drinking too much in in approaching before the Lord. Verses 8 and 9 of Leviticus chapter 10. This is another instruction that was given to them on entering into the temple. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink. You nor your sons with you. When you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Perhaps this was something that led to what went that took place. Now, how, what does that have to teach us here this morning? I think we all know from the scriptures, I hope we do, that drunkenness is forbidden. The Bible does not teach that you have to be a teetotaler. But the Bible does teach that drunkenness is sinful and wrong. It even goes even further than that. It says that the one who is a drunkard the one who's addicted to alcohol, the, the person who lives by that, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But what does it teach us? What does this text teach us about coming into the presence of Almighty God? It's actually the third commandment. In our attitude toward God, about not ta- taking the Lord's name in vain, and having a reverent, sober attitude in coming before the Lord. So we can have all our elements right. Okay? 
We can have all the elements right and tick the boxes. But that does not mean God's going to uh, be pleased with it either. Our hearts are vitally important as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 says this. Walk prudently when you go into the house of God. And draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth. And let not your heart utter anything hasty before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. There's, a, there's an awe. There's a, a sense of what can I but say? I'm in the presence of greatness. And there's a, there's a sense of carefulness, isn't there? In approaching before God. Now, dear friends, look. I love to have fun. I hope, hope, I hope some people realize I lo- it's good to have fun. It's good to have a laugh with your children, with your family. The, the worst thing is when you get into principles like this, you think, okay, I've got to be sober and I don't laugh at anything ever. No, it's good to have a good sense of humor. It's good to, a merry heart maketh a good medicine, as the Proverbs tell us. But that's life. That is life. What we're talking about here is worship. A service of worship. Now, we may say, well, God is everywhere. God is everywhere. In the Old Testament, God was everywhere too. It says this in Psalm 139, verse 8. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, below, behold, you are there. So God is everywhere. He fills all things. Nothing can contain him. Yet, yet. His special presence was in the Old Testament within the temple of God. Do you see that in the Old Testament? God is everywhere. He cannot be contained by his temple at all. But there's a sense in which his special presence was in the temple of God. The Holy of Holies. There was an outer court of the temple. And then there was an inner court of that temple. And they're being taught here to come in with a sober, reverent, Mind and heart before God. What can we, how can we apply this to our own lives? Do we prepare our hearts for worship? Have you ever tried to, to cook something in the oven, but you haven't preheated the oven? It's going to take a lot longer to get warm up than that. And you're probably going to, and before you know it, and it's still not cooking. Well, dear friends, as much as we need to preheat the oven, Before we put in anything into that oven, we need to preheat our hearts before coming into the presence of God. That may be reading some devotional thing in the morning, maybe maybe reading a section of scripture, praying, whatever it is. We prepare our hearts because we must be careful. We're not just box ticking and think, aha, we're Reformed Presbyterians. We've got this right. We've got this right. Ah, look at everybody else. And dear friends, if we have an attitude like that, God despises that attitude. We are lowly sinners. Our hearts need to be right before God. We are creatures coming into the presence of the infinite, holy, and righteous God. 
in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah criticized their heart, even though they seem to have a lot of the elements of worship right. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Now God commanded these sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. It's not just the ritual of coming here. Our hearts must be right and refreshed by God. So that's the promise of worship. The promise of worship we meet with God. We've got to have the principle of worship as well. But now we're going to look at the protection of worship, number three. The protection of worship. And we have to realize this. I remember reading, I think it was John Knox, would tremble as he came into the pulpit. Why? Why do you read of godly men of old? They would, they would be shaking as they came into the pulpit. Not because they were worried about the opinion of men. Far from it. Actually, a lot of these men were not worried about what men thought of them. But they were coming into the presence of God and they did not want to dishonor their God as they preached. It was such an important task that they were doing. Because God is very jealous and zealous over his worship. And what we've learned in this text is God's honor and glory is far more important to him even than the lives of the sons of Aaron. Now remember how important Aaron was. His two sons struck down dead. It's pretty serious, isn't it? And He's also saying in a way, my glory and my honor is far more important than any of our lives. My life, your life, any of our lives. God's honor, God's glory is far more important. In verse 3 it says this of Leviticus chapter 10. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all people, I must be glorified. And look how Aaron responded. So Aaron held his peace. I suppose we can only imagine what was going through his head at that moment. Your your children struck down dead right in front of you. There's something very shocking about this. John Trapp said this, by fire they sinned and by fire they perished. By fire they sinned, and by fire they perished. Their sin brought death. Now, all sin brings death. All sin brings death. The wage of sin is death. But why did this particular sin bring such swift judgment? I know we can say, well, you know, we're all sinners. But there are certain sins that are more serious than others. Was it not to teach the difference between, as it says earlier in the text, or later in the text, the difference between the holy and the unholy. Now, I think we often misunderstand what holy and unholy means. Holy is set apart for specific use. Unholy, we just think of common. In the, in the Lord's Supper, for example, we take bread and, and the cup. It's, taken apart, it's set aside from its normal, common use, and it's set apart for a sacramental use or a holy use. The the word holy simply means something set 
apart. Even the Sabbath day, a holy day, is a day set apart from the other six days of the week. But let's really think about this. How seriously does God take worship? He's not joking around, is he? So much so that even Aaron is told not to grieve over the deaths of Nadab and Abihu. This is pretty shocking. Look at verse 6. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons. Now, remember now, Moses is the the mouthpiece of God. He is the spokesman of God. Do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren and the whole house of Israel bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. Isn't that shocking? It's shocking. And if you were in that position and your own children die in front of you and somebody says, don't mourn over them, you might kind of go, how dare you say that? I'm going to mourn over my children. But you see the seriousness of what Nadab and Abihu had done. It was so serious that Moses instructed them, don't even grieve over them, but bewail something else. Bewail that the Lord was displeased with this offering. He even says, if, see, the, the danger is they could start to complain. They could start to to be angry with God. God, how could you do this? No, no, no. If you're going to weep and wail, wail over the fact that this is displeasing. What Nadab and Abihu did before God. This is serious. Moses is almost saying, do not add sin to sin. Do not add sin to sin and complaining before God. Learn this lesson and learn it quickly, dear friends. Because this is serious. Because what God did at that moment, where we may be shocked when you read it, was the right thing to do. Cry, weep, because it displeased God. We almost, if we could think away by way of application, friends, don't put your family, your friends, your children, your grandchildren, or anything else before God. It is a huge temptation. Here, Aaron is told, don't put your now dead family before God. Think about God first. God first. Moses puts the weeping and grieving over God, what God does not like. And he's also warning about curses. I think in the New Testament era, we think that Curses or covenant curses or the displeasure of God is only poured upon God's people in the Old Testament. It is not. And there are examples in the New Testament of God's wrath being poured out even within churches. One example I can give, and there's other examples as well, is Revelation chapter 2, verses 14, 15, and 16. And this is the Ephesus church. There's seven churches being written to in, in Revelation. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. 
Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now verse 16. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That's in the New Testament as well. God is very protective of his honor. We've already read verse 3. Verse 7 says this. You shall not go out of the door of the tabernacle of meeting lest you die. The danger of death wasn't just Nadab and Abihu. It was all of them. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And why were they not to leave? For they did according to the word of Moses. Or even say the word of God. Verse 15 in the same chapter says this. It talks about the thigh of the heave offering and the breast of the wave offering. They shall bring with the offerings of fat made by fire to offer as a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you by statute forever. As the Lord has commanded. As the Lord has commanded. There's even a principle there of the inheritance belongs unto you and unto your sons or your children. Now our final point, and we're going to try and apply this now to our own day. Our own day. The practice of worship. So we've looked at the principle, the promise, the protection of worship. Now we're going to look at the practice of worship. How is this worked out in the New Testament church? This is not in any way a new idea. It's not a covenanter idea. It's not. You can see elements of it in the early church. In the early church, they sung psalms exclusively a cappella. The Puritans were seeking to reform the Church of England and also the churches in Scotland to come to see this principle in the scripture. And uh, it's, it's usually called the regulative principle of worship. Now, just because it's old, it doesn't mean it's true. And I understand that. But scriptural principles clearly demonstrated in the word of God must never be set aside no matter the culture, no matter the popular opinion, or no matter what anything else. If we see in front of us this blue banner, men marched happily, willing to die for their principles, for Christ's crown and covenant. Over worship. It was imposed upon them by King Charles. Not our current King Charles, but a King Charles almost 400 years ago. And they marched under, for Christ's crown and covenant. It was a defensive war. They believed in Presbyterianism and they believed to follow what the Word of God said, not what the Church of England was telling them to do. And they're willing to die for what they believed. These scriptural principles must never be set aside, no matter the challenges we may face in applying them. Moses, we see in our text, continued, even with everything that happened. You might think Moses is going to go, let's not get so serious anymore, just too much. He might have toned it down a little bit, not at all. Moses is even more strict, you could say, at this point. Verse 16 
of uh, Leviticus chapter 10. Then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering. It was there, burnt up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, who were left saying, Why have you not eaten of the sin offering? And then verse 18. See, its blood is not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you shall have eaten it in the holy place as I commanded. Or you could even put it another way, as God has commanded. Because Moses was the speaking. He was the mouthpiece of God. He was the prophet of God. And Moses was zealous here. Jealous even of true worship. So must we. And dear friends, the the distinctives of the Reformed Presbyterian Church weren't always distinctives. If you go back 200 years, the Presbyterian churches would have all agreed with us as well that psalms must be sung. These are not just our own particular views. These are scriptural views that have been held throughout the church and throughout the ages and as a congregation of God, we come together. How, how are we to worship God? With praise. With the psalms we've been given in his word. Prayer led by the minister because he's an authority there. Uh, the reading of the scriptures is to be done with somebody who's set in authority by the church. Preaching, because that has been commanded in the word of God. The offering is in worship as well because it was practiced in the Lord's day. Places like 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. The benediction even at the end. That is based upon scriptural positive commands. All these things. The sacraments. The vows we take in baptism even. The vows we take even before the sacraments. Vows are part of worship as well. We see these in places like Nehemiah and other places like that. But you say, well, what about other things? What about other things we cannot find a positive command for in Scripture? They're forbidden. And I may even like many of them. But they're forbidden. I remember I was saved about six months. And I was talking to a Christian lady. And she told me one time a story that I still remember all these years later. I paint in worship to God. And I remember thinking, and she could tell there was a funny expression in my face, how do you know that God accepts that? And I think it started off a thought process in my head. How do you know that God wants your painting? Or anything else for that matter? I remember her saying to me, how long have you been saved? Six months? Okay, you'll understand one day. I still don't understand today. It's got to be what God has commanded Because otherwise, why why is painting not included in worship? Why is a play? I was at a church in Cork years ago, and there was a big play. I had no idea about anything about this principle of worship. And there was a play about Samson and other things. And I thought, okay, this is different. Acting, other things like that. Is it because of our tradition, or is it because of the word of God? We need a positive command from the scripture. And dear friends, neither I nor the session has any authority to go outside of the word of God. None of us do. None of us do. Now we've also got to be careful not to apply this principle in life. I just want to air some caution. 
The Bible study is different on a Wednesday. I'm not preaching on a Wednesday. That's not a service of worship. That's an informal teaching. And everybody's welcome to it. There's prayer. It's open to everybody. And that's a teaching class. It's not a service of worship. Sabbath school is not a service of worship. That's why we can have female uh, Sabbath school teachers. Those things that are applied to women not teaching or leading in the church are for worship. Otherwise, we couldn't have any female speakers in other situations, which we believe we can in life, in teaching situations. We've got to distinguish life from worship. If we bring this principle into life, we'll become very legalistic very fast. So I'll also caution you on that as well. We need to apply this only to worship and to worship alone. What a privilege. We have to, as we finish this, and I pray that it's been a blessing to you, what a privilege we have to come to God. This principle should unite every church across the entire world. Because if it is based on our preferences, well, I like certain types of music, will we have a guitar or the piano? Well, I've seen arguments over these kind of things. But when you have it according to the word of God, this should bring us all together as one. One people, under one God, unified together. Nothing to do with my preferences, nothing to do with anybody's preferences, but what we find in the word of God. And we have a wonderful privilege to come before God. For it's of him, through him, and in him be all the glory, both now and forever. Amen.